we want to introduce you to a footwear brand changing the game for healthcare workers. Meet Gales, the first smart PPE shoe designed in collaboration with nurses. Gales feature custom machine washable insoles with cloud-like long-term arch support. These slip-resistant and feather-light shoes wipe clean in seconds and stay dry thanks to their full moisture and microbe barrier. Gales are also 40 to 50% more affordable than other healthcare footwear brands. You can shop now at weargales.com and use the code GN10, that's G as in gritty, N as in nurse, 10, for 10% off your order. So what are you waiting for? Shop Gales now. Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And my name is Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes. If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis. This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you. Everyone, welcome to the Greeners Podcast. Thank you for listening in week after week. We have a special guest. And before I get into it, uh, Sarah, please jump in and tell us who we're talking to today. We have someone coming on the podcast talking about something we've never talked about before, and I'm not really sure why. I think this is a really important part of healthcare. It's definitely a very important part of the body. Um, I would like to introduce Brandon Doucette, who is a Nova Scotia-based dentist with interests in surgery and public health. He is the founder of the group Coalition for Dental Care, which is a group that seeks to highlight the shortcomings of Canada's dental care system while advocating for a more humane alternative. Coalition for Dental Care is an advocacy group started by passionate dentists and dental students. They do not receive funding from any source, and all members are volunteers. The team is comprised of dentists, dental hygienists, dental students, allied healthcare workers, and members of the public who believe that access to dental services should be available to all Canadians, regardless of socioeconomic status. Welcome, Brandon. We're so glad to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So I think this is really interesting because we've never had a dentist on before, and I'm not really sure why, because this is obviously a really important part of healthcare. It's uh, something that you feel very passionate about. I just wonder if you could tell our audience a little bit about your clinical background and how you got to where you are right now. I came into dentistry because I like working with my hands. I like the idea of doing surgery, which is the area where I spend most of my practice 
perform, you know, I spend most of my time doing that. It's something that I was lucky enough growing up to have access to dental care. But during my time in dental school, I started seeing people come in at a very late stage, say, for example, needing all of their teeth extracted at once. And it made me think, why is it that people are coming in at such a late stage rather than having, you know, this work done many, many years ago and hopefully saving teeth? And what I began to realize that it wasn't just the odd person falling through the cracks and lacking access to dental care, but rather large segments of the population that were lacking access to dental care, having to neglect care, uh, like routine care in order to focus resources more on emergency care and relieving pain. And in the meantime, smaller problems, they fester, they grow until they end up becoming an emergency. So the existing system we have with respect to dental care in Canada, which is highly privatized, we have about 95% of dental spending coming from the private sector through work-related insurance and out-of-pocket payments, and only 5% of dental spending coming from targeted government programs. This is a very low number. When we compare this to other developed countries in the OECD, we see Canada ranks second last even behind the Americans, which is a pretty low bar. So the lack of access to dental care in Canada is very bad. It's something that's actually worsening if we look at the numbers. So if we look at kind of general statistics, we see about one in three Canadians lack any form of dental insurance and over one in five avoiding the dentist each year because of financial constraints. And when we look at uh, trends in the nature of the economy, we're seeing you know, a lot of elderly people retiring and losing their work-related benefits, and a lot of uh, jobs that younger people are working are no longer providing benefits like dental insurance tied to their labor. So, you know, the rise of the gig economy and stuff like this. So things are actively getting worse, and I'm glad that we have the opportunity to help raise awareness here. Yeah, you know, thank you for all that information. I think that we, well, just based off of what we've seen in the news today, I'm, I'm sure we're gonna have a lot more to talk about when it comes to privatization and what this all looks like. But before we get into that, like really detailed type of conversation, I actually want to ask you a little bit of a personal question. Why did you become a dentist? Because I know there's always that like, there's, there's dental stigma. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, I even think about myself as, as my own dental hygiene and how often I go to the dentist and my husband just reminded me today, he's like, Amy, you need to go for a clean. It's probably been more than six months. And I'm just like, Oh, so maybe you could tell us just a little bit before we get into that real gritty conversation. Um, why did you decide to become a dentist? Well, uh, during my undergraduate degree, I was exploring different opportunities in the medical field to, because I knew I wanted to be a healthcare provider. I knew I wanted to work with my hands. And after doing some job shadowing in different realms, I became very interested in the small surgeries performed in dental offices and also how there's artistic components and there's also quite a variety in the day. So it's not like you're just doing the same thing for most of the days. You know, sometimes you're doing root canals, sometimes you're doing extraction, sometimes it's dentures. So there's quite a variety in the day and you're interacting with people and help kind of, there's a lot of follow-up. So you're seeing people throughout their lives as well, uh, which I find a very satisfying component. My next question to you is, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey in forming the Coalition for Dental Care and why you thought that would be a very important thing to do. When I mentioned my interest 
in dentistry, it wasn't something I didn't necessarily have the level of consciousness at the time of like lack of access to dental care. You know, I was fairly lucky growing up. I didn't have experience these problems firsthand. But as I went through dental school, as I said, I started to see some of these problems and I started to become more politically engaged in other aspects, particularly with respect to the Bernie Sanders campaign for president uh, in 2016 in the U.S. Uh, that kind of brought me in a lot. And I started to realize, you know, why can't, why am I not, take, I see these issues I care about other places. Why doesn't that apply to where I am here, which at the time was in dental school? So I started writing articles for newspapers and, you know, uh, platforms online who would let me write for them, basically, to help raise awareness for the need for a universal dental plan, because I thought everyone deserved access to dental care. But what I realized is as an individual kind of doing these pushes in this siloed off place wasn't really going to get us anywhere. And if I could kind of form a group to help have a unified push for something, we could be more effective at either enacting change or at least raising awareness for what the problem is and what is needed. So this actually kind of came to fruition uh, shortly after I graduated. I went to present at a, at a conference about on these subjects. So a conference for Canadian dental students, basically pitching, here's what I see as the problem, here's what I see as the solution, and who is interested in helping form the group Coalition for Dental Care. And luckily, there was a group of students at McGill University who kind of helped be the hub of the group, which even kind of remains to this day who was very interested and very passionate and they helped grow the organization from there to where we are now where we have people from all different walks of life we have you know, retired dental hygienists we have a lawyer whose son has a disability and they've struggled to access dental care because of the meager programs in place for people living with a disability and you know people from all different walks of life so i'm really glad to see uh we've kind of gained the momentum and traction we have Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so great because I think that dental care, as with many other forms of healthcare, the people that need it the most, the most vulnerable are the ones that are least able to access dental care. And I personally know um, people who wait until, you know, they've basically got an abscess before they go to emergency because it's the only way they can seek care. And I just have kind of a silly question for you. Has dental care always been private or is, was there a point in time where it was publicly funded? Dental care in Canada has always primarily been privatized. There were times in which it was better than it is now. So if we look at about the 1980s, public dental spending accounted for about 20% of overall dental spending because various factors, but like some provinces had more robust children's dental programs that covered all children, whereas now they've been uh, cut to the point where they cover, say, children on social assistance, and even the coverage within there tends to be more meager um, than it was at that time. And we see that with the other targeted dental programs in place, uh, like for programs for people on social assistance and stuff like this, they've become more meager and more focused on emergency care rather than comprehensive care. Uh, and this tends to be a problem, something I try to focus on with targeted programs versus universal programs. Targeted programs are politically weak. They're seen as people getting free stuff 
because some people pay for their care, whereas other people are getting this. So they should be grateful for whatever they have. Whereas universal programs, they have much broader uh, buy-in from society as a whole because everyone relies on these programs. They're much harder to undermine and underfund. Whereas targeted programs, no one even blinks an eye when those programs don't increase with inflation each year. Whereas with healthcare, there's much there's much more robust pushback from them. Yeah, I, it it almost reminds me of my my own situation with my son. So I have a son that has autism, and I think we've probably forked out of pocket probably within the last two years, like over a thousand dollars because we had to take him to a special clinic that's not covered under our actual dental plan. So this pediatric dentist that we have to take him to, and then he like he needs to see a special dentist because he they have to put him to sleep for cavity stuff. So we have to pay for that all out of pocket. I didn't even think about it that way. And I really should have in terms of the fact that, yeah, this again, widens the disparities and widens the gaps for, for folk. Like, I mean, at least I'm lucky and fortunate enough to have a well-paying job that I was able to afford that. But think about folks who don't, right? I mean, I think that's, that's the problem that therein lies the problem. And there's lots of conversations about, you know, what happens when folks don't take care of their dental care, right? So I, I think we've all heard the stories of the, you know, like heart disease and various different things. And again, it just continues to exacerbate a, a, a standing problem where we are putting people in these vulnerable situations. And I, I can't really wrap my mind around why or how the decision was made to have dental care not a part of this universal plan. Like we we talk about how great our system is. Look at look at us. We have universal health care, but it doesn't include dental care. So it's just it doesn't make much sense. And I think, you know, I think this is going to be great for our American listeners because they'll be like, oh, see, you know, here here's flawed Canada, too. But the thing is, like, where did these decisions come from and how do how do we move the needle in re- relation to making dental care more universal what can we do to try to to try to make some of those changes as well the reason dental care was not included in our universal health care system largely comes from the historical context and you know how this came about so if we look back in the 1960s and say saskatchewan when tommy douglas and the ccf which was the precursor to the ndp was going to implement a the a universal health care plan, which was the first of its kind in North America. There was tremendous pushback from physicians, from industry, from the business community, that really, it was very difficult to overcome those hurdles. And it was, there was a tactical decision made at the time that universal health care at this point in time is going to include physician services. And we're going to return at a later date to include things like prescription drugs, dental care, eyeglasses, among other things. But what we saw was once that universal health insurance plan for physician services was in place, we also saw the rise of things like work-related dental insurance because unions were bargaining for the services that weren't included in their universal health care system. This also coincided with governments not wanting to spend the money on a public dental program, which kind of narrowed the window of opportunity to include something like dental care in our universal healthcare system. Um, now, how do we go about fixing this? In my mind, there's two things that we really need to address. One, we need to address how dental care is funded, and two, how it's delivered. So, 
in my mind, I think the funding of dental care, you know, it should be as simple as people use their health card to get that get dental care. It's really as simple as that. Our resources should be focused on improving public health, not maximizing profit profits for shareholders, which is how the private health insurance industry works. Private health insurance inherently disenfranchises populations that are have a greater dental need because uh, you know co-payments, maximum yearly payments that they pay out. Um, you know all of these factors play into making it harder for people to access care. Whereas when you use your health card, there's no co-payments, there's no yearly limits, there's none of these things you need to worry about. You have certain services that you are entitled to as a Canadian, and you you don't have to neglect care as a result of the cost. Also, I do think delivery of dental services needs to be addressed as well. So not only is funding very privatized, but so is the delivery of dental care. And what happens is dental offices are really focusing on making as much money as possible. So they want to focus on high-end procedures like implants, cosmetic dentistry, like veneers, Invisalign. So these are procedures that make a lot of money, but aren't necessarily beneficial to public health. And it's hard for the public system to then kind of get its foot in the door there and really compete with those things. And we look at, say, like a public delivery model. So looking at alternative alternative delivery models of dental care that would have, say, dental offices in places like schools, long-term care facilities, uh, you know, healthcare facilities, um, among, you know, other places like that, that allows those clinics to focus solely on the public health rather than those other things as well. Also, what happens with dentistry as well is dentists are really the main providers of treatment. There are dental hygienists who can do cleanings and stuff like that, but the bulk of treatment is provided by dentists. What we've seen, which is kind of an interesting story, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a school-based dental program in Saskatchewan that had this public delivery model that I'm mentioning that used what are known as dental therapists which are mid-level dental providers that can do procedures like fillings, simple extractions, cleanings, all at a fraction of the cost of a dentist. And because of these increased efficiencies, the school-based dental program was wildly successful. It greatly reduced the number of cavities and the number of extractions needed for children. Over its period of time, it was very successful. By every metric, it was very cost-effective because of the use of these dental providers. Uh, I do like to compare the dental therapist uh, to dentist relationship, kind of like a physician to a nurse practitioner to help people imagine that. And it's something that dentists in private practice felt threatened by this threat of a good example, per se, of these profession of dental therapists, which were primarily women working in a public sector, doing basically the same job as dentists, but for lower costs. And dentists felt threatened. They lobbied the what ended up becoming a conservative government to dismantle the program from being a school-based dental therapy program to a private practice dentist-centered program, which was much less successful. It was more expensive. So we see these public delivery models as an opportunity to help bring dental therapy into the mainstream, 
which would not only allow us to increase access to dental care, it would it would allow us to do it in a very cost efficient way. Wow, this is something that I had I had no idea about, but it kind of reminds me of the struggle that we have right now between primary care nurse practitioners and family doctors because it's similar in a lot of ways because nurse practitioners can deliver a lot of the same care at a fraction of the cost, but family doctors are feeling threatened by the whole model. And you actually just took my next question out of my mouth, which is what do you see as the main barriers to rolling out universal health care? So I think that is one of them. But um, just in terms of the number of dentists right now, if universal health care were to happen, would we have capacity to provide that dental care, do you think? I think we would. I think there needs to be effective regulations and controls in place to make sure that dentists are actually treating the populations that like based on what the public health needs are, rather than focusing on things like implants, cosmetic dentistry, as well as dentistry is one of those things that is to some extent subjective, and it relies on trust between dentists and their providers. So if you go to the dentist and they say you need three fillings. Are you really 100% sure that you need three fillings? There's an inherent subjectivity that there's not a 100% perfect science to this. And one of the things we see with the public delivery model that can help ameliorate this problem is we can move away from the fee-for-service model of paying dentists and dental providers, which actively incentivizes that over-treatment towards a salary-based approach which does not incentivize over-treatment and can help standardize dental treatments as well. There are problems as well. So there are, there's not a dental shortage nowadays like there was at the time when universal healthcare was being implemented because that was actually one of the excuses used is, you know, there's not enough dentists to treat the population. You know, so there's not that problem, but there are disparities in rural versus urban settings in particular. So we see a lot of dentists wanting to focus on luxury and cosmetic procedures in more urban affluent areas, which leaves a relative not enough dentists in poor and rural communities. We do think that this is something that having a universal dental plan in place could help create the incentives to reduce these discrepancies. But also the public delivery model, I think, would be a very effective way at increasing the workforce in those underserved communities as well. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Brandon, for spilling the tea today, because honestly, it's actually stuff that we've been I've been thinking about. Like, I mean, there's a dentist in an area in which we live in. And I had like, you know, I moved from the GTA. I'm in this new area. And I, and she looked into my mouth and she's like, oh, we should redo all of these. I'm like, wait a minute, redo them all. Like they were done like a little while ago. And she's like, oh yeah, you know, we'll just redo them all, but make sure you send the plan to your insurer so we can see how much we can do at one given time. And I'm like, this bitch, no, I'm not doing that. Anyways, that was my little rant. But honestly, like one of the things that really concerns me, and I think it actually concerns the public is some of those various things that you discussed about in particular to like, am I getting care that I that I need? And I think I felt that I think other people have felt that. But then the 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 other stark reality is that monopoly, right? I think that's really like, it's a really good point. Because we're seeing it, like Sarah said, it's transposing into other things. How do we take a wildly successful program that that utilize the skills of another provider and say, 
scrap that. We don't want that because it's too successful. If the end of the day, you know, you got into healthcare, I got into healthcare, Sarah got into healthcare, to make sure that we can benefit and see best outcomes for patients and families, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing to people? How are we, how are we turning medicine into this capitalist business? That is what's happening. That's what, that's what happened. That's what's happening today. We were, we, I was dumbfounded when I heard the announcement and I saw what the Ontario Medical Association said. And I was just like, so this is the direction that we're taking now. And it's, it's really concerning to folks like myself and Sarah and yourself as well. Well, I don't, I don't want to lump you into with all this other stuff I'm saying, but like, it's really concerning to ourselves where, you know, we're advocating for equity. We're advocating for health equity. We want to see folks get the same amount of care that whether they were rich, whether they were living in a a low socioeconomic status area, but we're seeing the gap is starting to widen. And it's very, very concerning. Like th- this is this is another conversation that we have to continue to push for and advocate for because I'm afraid that we're going to see continue to see this ripple effect of more and more privatization and more and more and under utilizing services that we should be looking into. So, with even saying that, is there anything that you can think of that we can increase accessibility for those who are put at vulnerability because of, you know, these policy decisions, these things that we're putting into place that are really creating barriers for folks that are, you know, racialized under, you know, um, they, they're low income, they don't necessarily seek care, like what, like, what can we do? I'm so nervous. I don't, I don't know what to do. So, um, uh... On a, sli- a slightly positive note, there has been some potential progress being made at the federal level with the NDP dental plan being at the center of the supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and NDP. Basically, what this means is the Liberals agreed to the NDP of implementing their dental plan, which would be for uninsured families making less than $90,000 per year with no co-payments for those making less than $70,000 a year in a stepwise manner. So by the end of this year, there is supposed to be coverage for children under 12. So that would fill in some of the gaps for the dental programs that are in place that might, you know, the ages might end below 12 or there's income cutoffs well below what this new income cutoff would be. Uh, Next year, it should expand to children 18 and under seniors, which is a really big one because people lose coverage when they retire, and also people living with a disability, and with full implementation by 2025. So the way that this program will come to fruition, if it does, um, would be, you know, the NDP needs to be willing to withdraw support from the Liberals, potentially triggering an election. It doesn't guarantee that it does, because other parties like the Conservatives or the Bloc Québécois could vote with the liberals blocking an election but it could potentially trigger an election um and hopefully hold the liberals feet to the fire to help implement this dental plan now the liberals have set aside about i believe it's 5.3 billion dollars over the next five years to help implement this dental plan the ongoing costs of this once it is fully implemented. So, you know, there's more of an upfront cost at the beginning because there's a backlog of dental treatment that has gone neglected for so long. Once that backlog is overcome and we're just kind of at the regular ongoing costs, it's expected to cost about $1.7 billion per year, which to put in perspective is only about half a percent increase in healthcare. 
healthcare spending. So it's kind of a drop in the bucket in that sense. But it also would alleviate tremendous pain and suffering. And it would also have many knock-on benefits. As you've already mentioned, people won't have to go to the emergency department for dental pain. Hopefully, people won't become hospitalized because their dental infections got so bad they could access dental care sooner. Uh, and with respect to dental care in and of itself, this would be the biggest investment in oral health in Canadian history. You know, I still think plenty more needs to be done. I'm actually in the process of uh, publishing a book with Fernwood Publishing that goes into plenty of detail on how this isn't enough, but it would be a big step in the right direction. And uh, like some of the problems that would still exist with this program is that it still leaves the private the private delivery of dental care is kind of the driving force. We still have, you know, when we talk about privatization of healthcare, dental care is kind of at the forefront of that. We have dental corporations that own hundreds of dental offices that are kind of, you know, these are major problems because they're for-profit driven machines. Uh, all of these things are left in place. Also with the targeted dental model, one of the things that happens is People relying on targeted programs are kind of second-class citizens in private dental offices. So dentists still have preferences for treating patients with a private dental plan because they often pay out higher fees. It's just easier to use, and it's what dentists are used to. It's what they're comfortable with. Hopefully, this new targeted dental program at the federal level will be better than the existing ones that are in place because they have been significantly undermined over the years. And I do think starting off, it will be, but I still don't think it will be fully at the same level as, say, private dental plans, or I don't think it's going to be fully what is ultimately needed. It's a step in the right direction, but it's by no means my end goal at the Coalition for Dental Care. Yeah, that's that's my fear, too, in terms of the election piece, because a jug meet came out and, and kind of called out the liberals and said, hey, you know, this is something that we discussed and we said that we're going to work together towards. And that that is my fear that an election will be triggered because of that very issue that you mentioned. Um, I I'm really hopeful for everything that you just talked about. However, I'm holding my breath. I'm cautiously optimistic just because of what has happened in the past. I think that, like you said, it's a step in the right direction. And I think we just need to be really innovative because I don't know if it's possible, but I saw this episode of Dragon's Den a few years back where there was a mobile dental hygienist that went around and, you know, did cleanings and just trying to increase accessibility for folks that have physical disabilities for whatever reason, they're housebound, they're bedbound. I don't know right now currently how they receive dental care, but I can't imagine that it's very easy to to get the services they need. I do think that this program could help with that because, for example, we do see some dental hygienists going into places like long-term care settings at this time, but most people in long-term care settings lost their work-related insurance when they retired and don't have the disposable income to pay for these services. So basically, all seniors would be gaining coverage under this program that would be very beneficial in that sense. Now, I still think it would be better if places like long-term care settings or hospital just hired dental hygienists, dentists, and dental therapists, all of them directly, and just paid them a salary and said, you know, do your work. It's simple as that. You don't have to worry about the kind of fee-for-service model. But still, I do think that this will help many of those populations. I completely agree. And I think that there's there's a lot of work that we need to to we need to bring people's awareness to this. I hope that through our episode that we'll get some people more people talking. And again, like I think that 
we have to do better. Like, it's very, very disheartening to hear some of the things that we heard today. And I think that, again, like you said, there's still hope. There's still hope for change and innovation and to do things the right way. And I want to encourage people to really start thinking about what we're doing as a society, what we're doing as a collection to, to people. We talk about, oh, we have social medicine here. or We, you know, we... We're a, we're a community in terms of healthcare. We're not. There's still so many things that we're divided on. And at the end of the day, if it's about patient safety, it's a, if it's about patients and families and seeing better health outcomes, we need to start really thinking about the things that we're doing and why we're doing them. And I really hope that we'll see some change. And I mean, I, I, I'm not going to throw my, my political ideology out there. I'm sure people already know. But I mean, we need to do this. This is the work that should be done. And I hope that we'll see some change in the future, some real change. I just wanted to add that, like when I first started the Coalition for Dental Care, Care Group, there are plenty of people who said this is such a lofty goal, like the idea of universal dental care, for sure, but also even just the idea of like the NDP dental plan, which was coming about around the time that I started the group, was basically viewed as some lofty goal that will never happen. And what is achievable is subject to change. And it's really dependent on what people like you know, you and I do about it. Do we go out there and try to raise awareness for these issues? Do we, you know, make a stink about these things? Or do we just sit there and kind of be, you know, in the shadows? Um, you know, we, we actually do have the potential to change things. We just need to do everything we can to try to, you know, it doesn't happen naturally. This has been really informative, and I hope our listeners get a lot out of this episode. I certainly did. Um, if people want to support you or your organization or just, you know, advocate more for universal dental care, how can they do that? So I recommend people checking us out on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, that's where a lot of our work is done and posting webinars and stuff like that. And if people want to reach out to us through those social media platforms to join the group and help us advocate for universal dental care, we would be glad, glad to have the help. Absolutely. We'll put all of the details in our show notes and you might have two extra advocates on, on top of that. So uh, we're definitely here for you and definitely here to advocate for universal dental care. Thank you so much for coming on our show, Brandon. Thank you.